to Amos chapter 3. As we continue looking in the book of Amos at the hard truths that the Lord says to us. Our text this morning is the entirety of chapter 3. It is another oracle or sermon by Amos directed at the people of Israel. But it is also the very Word of God. It is completely without error. It is completely sufficient. And it is authoritative not just for the Israelites, but for you and me as well. Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord God does nothing without revealing His secret to the servants, to His servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? Proclaim it to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord. Those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. Therefore, says the Lord God, an adversary shall, shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punish Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's ask for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would teach us from Your Word, that You would open our eyes, that we might know Your will. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been going through the opening stages of the book of Amos. And you'll recall that in chapter 1, Amos preached a 
fire and brimstone sermon against all of the nations that surrounded Israel. And you'll recall that we thought in our mind's eye that as, as Amos preached against Syria and against the Philistines and against Edom, we could just imagine the Israelites cheering him on, jumping for joy. They probably even had the ancient equivalent of those big foam hands with the we're number one sound. Everybody else is problematic. Everyone else is sinful, but we know who we are. We are God's chosen people. And then you'll remember in chapter 2, Amos keeps circling in. He X finds the spot, and he begins then to circle in on Israel to tell them of all of the ways in which they are acting like the nations around them. And now here in chapter 3, Amos lets us see God's assessment of Israel. It is what he thinks of Israel. Israel that is so proud of all that they have accomplished, of all that they have built, of all that they have done. They're so proud of themselves that they are forgetting God. And so, verse 1 begins, Hear the word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel. We might even use a more neutral word than against. This Hebrew preposition can also mean about. But of course, from the context, we see that it's not a neutral assessment. It's a very negative assessment. But God is simply laying out the case of exactly who Israel is. Now, what does that mean then for us? Well, we too represent the establishment of God's people. We represent His covenant people, His church gathered together to worship Him. And we too are bound by covenant promises, covenant oaths, that we are called to follow after the Lord and His law, to trust Him by faith, and to show that we have been changed by Him. And so what I would like us to see here from this text are three things that the Lord does for Israel, but He also does after a fashion for us. The first thing that He does is He states the truth. He begins by stating the truth of what the situation is. How Israel got to be Israel. And then secondly, He will sound the alarm through His servant Amos. And then finally... He will ask them to shed the false hope that they have that they might flee to Him. He states the truth. He sounds the alarm. And then He sheds their false hope. Let's begin then by looking at the truth that God states for Israel. He begins by telling them that they are a chosen people. Hear this word, O Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now, even the very name of Israel means something. For who is Israel? It's Jacob who became Israel. Jacob who was taken by the Lord, and just as his forefather Abraham was put on a path, a path of covenantal grace, that God might shower upon him the grace of his presence, the glory of a relationship with him. Only Israel, we see, only Israel was chosen amongst all of the peoples. And that reminds us that Israel was chosen not because they were great, 
They were a puny nation. When they were chosen, they weren't even a nation. They were a big family. They were not chosen because of their intelligence or because of their abilities. They were chosen because God had determined to put His love upon them. That's a reminder to us. Because you see, as we travel the path of life, we face a temptation. The devil whispers in our ear. He whispers that God loves you because you're so smart. Oh, kids, you know so many Bible verses. God must love you more than your friends. Oh, your church is so neat and clean and the music is beautiful and you all can read the responsive readings in unison. Oh, God loves you for that. You see, Satan can take the good things that we have and experience and make us think it is because of the things that we do that God loves us. But God states the plain truth. I chose you. I called you out. That's the second truth that we see. That Israel is a people redeemed by God. God showed the love that He placed on Israel in His choice in a very practical way. You know this at home, don't you? Parents? Moms? What better way to show a young child that you love him than by comforting him in the dark? Or putting a band-aid on that cut that really isn't bleeding, but it makes them feel so much better. You see, God does that with His people as well. He reminds us of the very practical ways that He has put His love upon us. He took them out of sin and misery and slavery in Egypt. If He had not done that, Israel would not even exist. They would be assimilated. They would just have become some part of the glob of Egyptians. And if we know our history we would know that they would then cease to exist because the ancient Egyptians do not exist anymore. They don't live in Egypt. It's Arabs who live there now. But you see, Israel was not subject to the vagaries of nations and wars and combat. No, God Himself pulled Israel aside and redeemed her. That leads us to the third truth that God says to Israel. He says... You only have I known of the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Now, we might be shocked by that. God has just told us of a special love He has for His people. How He has chosen them for Himself. How He has redeemed them. And if we think of this in terms of ourselves, we can smile and bask in God's love. And then the therefore hits us like a two-by-four out of nowhere. Therefore, because I've loved you, I will punish you. What? God, you're supposed to love us all the time. And the way you're supposed to love us is to show us by giving us all sorts of things. Isn't this true? An entire heretical theology has grown up around this. If God loves you, you'll have a BMW in your driveway. If God loves you, you won't be sick because God loves you. Oh, you have a cold? Well, I guess God isn't too fond of you this week. But you see, if we're honest with ourselves, that full-blown heresy is as its germ in our hearts. That we think that God owes us because He has chosen us. But you see, the reality is, 
that we are instead accountable to God. You see, God did not choose us from a convenience. God knows His people, and that brings about a special responsibility. We might think of it this way. Dependence on God makes us more responsible. Because we have God's grace. We have God's Word. And grace should make us feel gratitude toward God. You see, because God showered His love upon Israel, they had a special responsibility to walk after His commands. Because you see, God must be faithful to His covenant. He must be faithful to His oath and to His promise. You wouldn't want God to simply say, well, I've decided not to keep my promise, would you? But God's promise is that He will punish those who pretend that they are His but are not, who mouth words of obedience, but do not live that out in their lives, who say they believe in Jesus as their highest end and good, but really don't give Him the time of day. You see, God must keep faithful. And that brings a special responsibility to God's people. It is the reality of God's covenant. God is not changing His mind when He chastises Israel here. He is showing that He is true to His promise. There is judgment within the covenant. You see, John tells us in his first letter that they went out from us because they were never of us. That is what God does. He purifies His people. Even our Lord Jesus Christ expressed clearly how it was not enough to simply talk the talk. He said, you will come up to me and say, Lord, Lord, we did all sorts of things in your name. He says, but was there reality in your life? I don't think so. You did it for yourself. This is a truth, it's a hard truth that God gives to Israel and to us. And he backs it up with an alarm. Through Amos, he sounds the alarm because if this is the truth, then we need to be warned. We need first a message of warning, and then we need a message of hope. And the Lord does it in such a marvelous way. You know, sometimes I think if man invented religion, if man had invented the Bible, Amos 3 would be a philosophical treatise with logical syllogisms. But instead, God wants to prove his point to us, and he takes some very practical examples and questions. He asks a series of hard questions of us. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Is there a lion who roars in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? These are, these are commonplace to the Israelites, maybe, maybe not to us because we don't know lions. Perhaps if Amos were in our day, he would say something like, will the person behind you blare the horn if the light is red and not green? And of course you say, no, it's when the light turns green and I'm sitting there that they've honked the horn. You see, God is saying there is cause and effect in the world. Two cannot walk together unless they've agreed to meet. A lion roars when his prey is there and he's about to pounce on the lion. A lion growls in his den when he has already got his prey. 
a bird falls in a snare because there is a trap there. It doesn't just appear. You see, God is saying there is cause and effect and there's an edge to this. He's saying threats are not idle. Bad things happen. And now is the time to wake up. Look at verse 6. Is there a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? You see, in ancient days, a trumpet would be blown when an attack was imminent or upon a city. And fear would strike the inhabitants because they wouldn't know what was going to happen if they were going to live through the day. You see... The Lord is bringing this home to Israel. He's saying, you're complacent. You think you have it all together. You think you know all the answers, but you don't. You've forgotten the truth, and you need to be warned, and you need to go back to the Lord. You see, God will not be mocked. The last question here makes this clear. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Up until this point, everyone would be saying, no, of course not. No, of course not. And now they pause. Wait a minute. You mean God actually brings bad things to his people? You mean God doesn't just bring candy and and sweets and lightness? No. No. When God's people need to be warned from a path of destruction, God brings about disaster. It's a message of warning. But at the same time, it is also a message of hope. You see, we can be lost in the harshness of Amos if we're honest. I have to tell you that preaching through Amos is not as easy as preaching through something like Ephesians. Or a wonderful story like Ruth. Right? That has a happy ending. Everyone loves that story. God is glorified. They get married. They have kids. David is born. But here it's all fire and brimstone. How do you see the grace of God in this harshness of Amos? The problem is we tend to focus on the harshness. But this is not the end. Do you notice that? God proclaims all of these disasters, but they are not upon the Israelites. You see, it is not the end that Israel is faced with. It is the now. And this is the prophet's mission. He speaks the word of God. You remember we said that a prophet is not primarily about foretelling, predicting the future, but about forthtelling, telling God's will. And what the prophet does is he tells the future that it might have an impact upon God's people now. You see, when we hear of the future, our future in the book of Revelation, it is not so that we might have secret knowledge. It is so that we might be changed now. We might know what God is bringing about so that we might have faith, so that we might have comfort, so that we might have confidence, so that we might have assurance. Here in Amos, it is a message of hope because what is happening now is going to be a result of the future. It's like this. We read a little bit of John the Baptist this morning. But do you remember what John the Baptist's cry was? It was, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. 
It was not repent or something will happen. It was the kingdom is coming, therefore you must repent. That's what Amos' message is. He reveals the will of God to God's people that they might be changed, that they might see the error of their ways. You see, for Amos, it is not important that he knows the events that are coming. For Amos, it is important that he knows the God who is coming. You see, the prophets reveal the secrets of God because they are in relationship with God. What is revealed is God's nature in response to the people of Israel. Amos doesn't have to guess how God will act. He knows who God is, that God is holy, that God is faithful, that God is in relationship with His people. And because Amos knows who God is, he can tell them what's coming. Is that your view of God today? When you think about your future, whether it's whom you will marry, or where you will go to school, or how you will raise your family, or where you will live, do you do it in light of who God is? Because you see, if you do, then you will know the path that is put before you. You don't need a secret, holy, magic eight ball that you shake and say, should we move to a smaller house? Outlook cloudy. No, we say to ourselves, who is God? What does He require of us? What does He tell us in His Word? And that tells us how we should treat those around us. How we should follow after Him. You see, this is the climax of the covenant of God. To know God. To find hope in Him. This is what it means. The third thing that we see is that the Lord not only states the truth, He not only sounds the alarm, but He describes for the Israelites and us the false hope that they have that we might shed false hope. The most dangerous thing is having false or incorrect hope, isn't it? You know the old example of faith? How you go, it's not just looking at a bridge and saying, that's a sound bridge, I could stand on that. It's not just saying, you know, historically, people have gone out onto that bridge and have stood there. Faith is going out on the bridge, trusting that it will hold you, right? The worst thing that could happen is if you go out on that bridge and it is rickety and it collapses because you didn't know the nature of the bridge. You see, if we have false hope, if we place hope in our government, in our 401Ks, in reform movements, in our military, in ourselves, that we will be disappointed. If we place hope in things that are changeable, fallible, then we will be disappointed at some point because we are not seeking after the one place where hope is found, the Lord Jesus Christ. And false hope can take many different aspects. The first way that we see here in this text is taking God for granted. Look with me at verse 9. The Lord says, Proclaim it to the strongholds in Ashdod and the strongholds in Egypt, and say, Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. 
See the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They don't even know how to do right, says the Lord. The Lord God opens up a court, as it were, and they assemble to see the wickedness of Israel. And it is, it is a marked contrast because God calls together the Philistines and the Egyptians, the two symbols of wickedness and oppression. And he says, you know, guys, you could learn a thing or two from my people Israel about oppression and wickedness. I want you to imagine that. It's as if we had a great conference here. And we called together all of the teachers of evolution. And we called together the homosexual lobby and prostitutes and thieves. And we sat them down and we said, you need to observe, folks, because if you really want to know how to be wicked, you need to see our church folk here. Oof. God is really getting pointed with Israel. But you see, he has a reason to. They are disregarding the proper order of society. They can't even keep society straight. They are filled with tumults. They are filled with robbery. They are unjust to the weak among them. They are filled with oppression and with violence because all that matters to them is themselves. God is subtly saying, if you think that the only thing that matters is you, then you can teach the pagans a trick or two. So if you today are in a place where you don't care about other people, where all that matters is you and what you have in your way, then examine your heart. Because the people of God are called to self-sacrifice, looking for others. Because you see, grace should change us. It should change who we are. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in Philippians 2 that what it means to be a believer is to be humble, to put others before ourselves. And when we don't, we don't even know the way to go. The, the word is very vivid here that Amos uses. He says they do not even know how to do right. It's like saying they don't even know how to walk a straight line. They stumble and fall. It's the same word that Isaiah uses to that same effect in Isaiah 59, 14. He's saying that the church is like a bunch of people flunking a sobriety test. They can't even walk straight. It's pointed. But there's another thing that we do. We have false hope because we trick ourselves. We think that we are deeply spiritual when we are not. Notice what happens here. In verse... 12. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. Now that may seem odd to you, so let me see if I can put some skin and bones on that. If an animal was under the care of a shepherd and disappeared, in order for the shepherd not to have to pay the owner for that animal, he had to prove that it had been taken by a lion or a bear. And the way he proved was he brought the scrap pieces that were left behind. Right? How many legs do lambs have? How many is Amos saying you'll find? Two. How about a scrap of an ear? Now that doesn't sound like much of a rescue, does it? I wouldn't want to be rescued that way. So that someone rescued my ring finger? That would not be enjoyable. 
But you see, we also see more of this and we see what is rescued from Israel. What's rescued is the corner of a couch and a part of a bed. You see, what Amos is saying, you lounge around all the time on couches and beds. You have no need for God's worship. You have no need for the Lord. You are so self-indulgent that when you are rescued, all that will be rescued is your luxury seating. Do we want that to be said of us? All that will be rescued is the steering column of your car. A piece of the leather of your favorite recliner. You see, that hits home, doesn't it? If we choose to sit in our recliner rather than to sit around the table and pray. If we choose opportunities for wealth and gain rather than service. We can trick ourselves that we are doing the right things and we are very spiritual and God loves us. When in reality, God is judging us. The third and final way in which we must shed false hope is we must shed trusting in ourselves. Amos finishes here in verses 13 through 15. He says that he will testify against the house of Jacob And on that day he will punish Israel for his transgressions. I will punish the altars of Bethel. Now the altars of Bethel are the false religion that Israel set up to compete with the temple in Jerusalem. God is saying to them, you think that you have religion figured out. You think that you have set up the perfect religion. It's a religion that will help you politically. It's a religion that will help you in monetary ways. But it is not God-given religion. It is rebellion. And because of that, I will punish the altars of Bethel. You see, the Israelites were reinventing religion. They were confusing the visible with the invisible. An altar and a bull with the invisible God. This is Romans 1 in ancient Israel. And it's something that we can fall prey to as well. Because, you see, we can confuse the visible evidences of what we think are God's blessing, of what we think are God's purpose for the invisible power of God himself. You see, when we begin to fashion God after ourselves, we begin to change. When our religion is outward-facing, our relationships become outward. Our lives become materialistic and outward. Well, if we're not able to trust in ourselves, if we're not able to trick ourselves, then what can we do? What is the solution? Amos 3 ends on a very sad note. Destruction everywhere. Every house conceivable. The solution is to hear Amos. To trust in the Lord. To trust in his word that is faithful and true. To trust in his covenantal promise that never changes. To not trick ourselves that we can do better. That we are smarter. But if we trust in the Lord Jesus, we will find true meaning, true happiness, and true worth in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are indeed a God who is faithful. Sometimes, Lord, that frightens us as we see that you must be faithful to your promise. But, Lord, we ask that you would remind us 
That you have called us to yourself. That you have sent your Son that we might find forgiveness of sins. And we ask, O Lord, that you would work in us. Work in us faith. That we might seek ever after the Lord Jesus. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.